from deep behind the enemy lines of FEMA Region 3. You're listening to the Powder Monkey Podcast on PirateInfoWars.com. Episode 58 of the Powder Monkey Podcast. The uh, episode today for the third time. Uh, they say the third time is a charm. And uh, this one uh, is, uh, you know, uh, proven uh, to uh, proven that, that saying true. Uh, back with us again, sailing aboard the, uh, the Powder Monkey uh, to talk about his latest volume, Volume 8, Confessions of, Illumi- of uh, an Illuminati, From the Rise of the Antichrist to the Sound of the Devil and the Great Reset. I have patriot, author, producer, musician, a man of many hats, a man of many talents, Leo Zagami. Thank you for coming back aboard the Powder Monkey podcast and uh, spending some time with us to this afternoon. Always a pleasure, Patrick. Glad to see you still rocking it here with patience and, like you said before starting, a labor of love indeed when you are working with so much censorship. I see that you have moved around things with uh, uh, turning things around with Rumble, which is, of course, an option that we all have. So let's get on with this show, which I probably would love to also broadcast on my channel in the future uh, on uh, YouTube uh, myself uh, still uh, as uh, I am persisting even after the strikes, the many strikes, the blocks and all that, uh, you know, I kind of insist, but it's it's like uh, uh, mostly now restricted to those people who really want to view me and listen to what I have to say and follow my books because uh, of course uh, we don't have uh, the, 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 the the large audience that we used to have when the channels uh, were much more popular and then of course uh, uh, we, we reach much higher numbers of subscribers. But I think that uh, these days uh, as we are all uh, forming micro communities uh, in a way, even in the virtual world of the internet, uh, we we kind of following that kind of trend. Right. So, um, you know, that, that's the, the thing. I mean, Alex does the thing where he changes his URL to kind of mask and get out there. But, and, and that's effective. But the thing about it, and, and you, you're right, it, it, it's kind of like uh, Coca-Cola having to change their name every, uh, every six months and start all over with that rebranding and top of mind awareness and everything that it, that it takes to, you know, to have a successful campaign to begin with. And then they, they cut the knees out from underneath people like you that's and like, like me. Uh, sorry to interrupt you, but I think that still uh, I have uh, the best option by writing Absolute. books. Uh, and especially I insist uh, once again on people purchasing hard copies of my books, aside from maybe having the Kindles just for, for uh, you know, because they're handy and they can go to the cafe with it and just read it on the go, because this is, of course, a 700 pages book, so it's not an easy read on the road. But I would suggest that you always get the hard copy now, as the censorship in the future will immediately be unleashed, uh, editing books uh, in, uh, in a way that probably the original order will, uh, will have prevented. But this is how it works probably in the future of, 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 uh, the, of the books that are made available to the public. I heard you mention the value of books, paper books. Um, especially, especially ones that have been handed down at one point. And I think you're so right about that, that it, even just the smell can take you back to not just, not just gain that knowledge, but take you back in time to a, 
to a you know to to when you were four and and you were flipping through the books you know just pulling matter at random you know so yeah um you know and it's a link to your past and and it's something that they can't erase i was going to ask you because i i did this is the first book i've actually done especially when i'm reading uh, to do research from a kindle from a research point, it's not very easy to do. You can't copy and paste as, as easy. You have to you have to take your notes and everything. But uh, have you? Ha, I've heard authors in the past discuss, you know, Kindle selectively uh, removing things. Have you experienced that, or have you seen anything? I, or, it's just direct censorship. For one, so with one of my first books that I self-published on the internet uh, a few years back, uh, uh, which was uh, <laughs> basically. Uh, removed because the lawyer of the Ordo Templi Orientis contacted Amazon and and to avoid any problem I simply uh, went back on the book, uh, took away whatever they might have. I mean it was just a, they were trying to um, get the attack the book by saying that I had used uh, copyrighted material in, in symbols that they use within their order. But in any case, uh, from my point of view, those symbols were never really their own creation because we know that uh, the OTO was founded even before Alistair Crowley in any way. It's stuff which uh, uh, belongs to uh, to the mystery school tradition of the West in general and, and should have no copyright. But but uh, that's uh, something that happened. They just simply removed the book and I then went on and, and then myself, I published a few months after a different version of the same book, uh, just trying to avoid those things that could be used by their lawyer to, to put it down. Aside from that, uh, I've been lucky enough uh, up until now to not have uh, these kind of problems. But I know that is happening with uh, with various authors, probably more established than me, that probably have uh, also the scrutiny not only of the AI, which is what uh, usually Amazon does, uh, or, you know, when they are about to publish a book, but probably they will have uh, some people uh, scrutinizing it personally, you know, with the real people. So that is probably something they do and they can do only for big orders because if they start to do it with everybody, I think they will need, it will be impossible, no? Right. So at so, the moment, maybe I'm lucky enough to not be so big to attract all that attention <laughs> that will bring me the, the censorship with the books. However, I must say that uh, I had some problems in the past uh, when I was in Italy, when I was actually publishing my books in Italy, and suddenly in 2013, uh, the end of 2013, because of my political activity, they actually removed the books from uh, the, the, the bookshops and they censorship, uh, they censored me in every way possible, aside from receding from the contracts I had. Uh, which was, uh, of course, then a uh, big damage for me economically because at that point I was really very much uh, making my living out of the Italian market, uh, aside from the Japanese market, uh, which has been the first uh, place where I published my books. Then mm -hmm. I came and published my books here in the US, and the only book I have problems with here in the US, which was censored, and it's still censored actually, in some penitentiaries, that's the strange thing, but it's true, uh, they mm. basically, volume two of my confessions was uh, a book uh, that uh, I think had elements that uh, the, 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 the Satanists didn't like. In fact, the Brotherhood of Satan is a satanic uh, oh, yeah. uh, sect which I had denounced. They went after my publisher, and my publisher decided to then uh, omit uh, several pages of the book uh, from future editions and from the Kindle to avoid having any legal problems. Having said that, uh, I didn't uh, stop uh, uh, my exposure of the Brotherhood of Satan in uh, subsequent books, which I published myself because I didn't right. really care. Uh, I think that the problem here is that, of course, they were uh, one guy in the Brotherhood of Satan in particular, 
had said he wasn't a public person. When you go on his Facebook, he has basically a proper pic where he says appeared on Fox, CBS, uh, <laughs> more public person than that. So it was a kind of, of something that didn't make sense. But of course, that was one thing. And then uh, later on, the uh, Arizona, the state of Arizona Penitentiary Department contacted my, I think my publish to let it, uh, or somebody contacted my publish to basically let know that my book was prohibited within the penitentiary system of Arizona. Wow. Now I don't know how many other states have adopted this uh, decision, but I know that actually I wasn't uh, the only author uh, that uh, was unfortunately suffering this kind of censorship. But it was pretty shocking. I mean, why shouldn't a guy, an inmate of a jail, be able to read a book? I mean, sure. What, well. what is he going to do? <laughs> is he, <laughs> in a jail, poor guy. I mean, you right. know. So it's, it was a little bit uh, shocking, yeah. Right. You know, and, and speaking of that, um, one of the great things of doing these type of podcasts and, and doing the things with your volumes is is that it's a it, it's actually a time capsule. And when I was preparing for this episode, I went back and I listened to your first two. And the first time you were on, we, it was pre-pandemic. And so everything went well. We had a great discussion. The second Which time you that? came on. Which year I'm, I'm sorry. Which year was that? Uh, 2019. 2019. No. So I was already here in the U.S. Yes. And so, and then you came on uh, for episode 33 after the pandemic. And so, and and just to see the, the difference. And it's not just in, in this podcast. It's, if you go back and watch what has happened, uh, you know, psychologically, and we're going to get into that here in just a minute with, with you know, how, how they do it with, with in certain frequencies and tones and everything else. But but just the, the gambit that they ran, the whole thing that we now have seen come crashing down, the congressional hearings, the censorship, the selective censorship, things I was saying back in 2016 because I was hearing it you know, from people like Alex Jones and you and and uh, David uh, David Ike and you know all these other people who who had been warning, uh, but you know and anyway, just to see it, uh, you know, we we couldn't mention the V word, and uh, it wasn't what would normally get you censored uh, back in the '60s and '70s on a on a on a show. So you know, it, it's just to see it, uh, you know, where we are. I, I never thought I would wake up in a in a point in time where we were here and my grandma always warned me she was a christian you know but uh you know she always told me the time was coming but to see it actually take shape and and i think you mentioned that that you're you've gone so far as to say we are in the last phases of the antichrist's setup and so We'll get we'll get into that now. Uh, you know, music. Um, you know, power is defined as the ability to have. Uh, you know, to make someone or something do that which it would not normally would have done. So music fits that perfectly. You can hear a tone and be sad and automatically be uplifted. And and we're going to talk about maybe why that's happening. Uh, you know, so Leo, I'm, I'm going to let you, you know, I'm going to let you go. You know, there's, there's good tones, there's bad tones. Uh, my son who was, has just graduated from West Virginia university. Uh, he is like a musical wizard. Now he was by yesterday and I was preparing for the show. And, uh, I was like, what do you think about, you know, for, you know, 440 and, and, you know, 432, and he said he he flipped out just had on his phone he had all these fibonacci sequences and collar tones and he's just like a he's a musical wizard i guess <laughs> but but get into it leo let's let's start uh you wrote it uh and i'm going to let you skipper us through here you'll be the captain for this episode and and you know just break it down for everybody you know what has gone on uh you you make a really good point about hollywood and uh, you know how it got its its uh, 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 you know uh, stigma of Babylon. You talk about the egregore. So let's just get into it, man. Uh, it, the wheel's all yours, sir. Thank you so much. 
well. I hope that uh, what I said before the pandemic uh, was in line uh, with uh, what happened later after, but I think that you have you had the you had the over again the confirmation of my of what I was denouncing and exposing. Um, in fact, you had the WHO logo on your book. Yeah, uh, no, before. Actually, <laughs> so yeah, I think two, you called that one. <laughs> yeah, now going back to volume two, that was the book where I predicted that 2020 as the year the, the, the virus will lock people up in their homes. So, I mean, that was pretty much a very accurate prediction, right to the point. Uh, regarding uh, the retuning of music at 4.32, which is the initial topic of my book, this happens because, of course, music is something that people regard way too often as entertainment, uh, when in reality, in the ancient mystery schools, it was considered something much more serious. And uh, it was part of the mysteries that were transmitted uh, by people like Pythagoras. And of course, uh, we are uh, with somebody who has given us uh, one of the basis for geometry also and for also, the, Freem the Freemasons themselves uh, have uh, a lot uh, of things that are connected to that uh, uh, old Pythagoric uh, uh, sect, uh, mystery school, call it uh, however you want, uh, which considered um, geometry as solidified music. So the relationship between uh, the uh, harmonic sounds uh, and the way they are produced and the way that really after the Big Bang, uh, how life uh, started in this universe, how this universe started started with, with something that was, of course, very noisy. We call it Big Bang. So it's like a big bang. It's sound in itself. No? And then... Of course, when it comes down to music, these seven notes, uh, which in a way are connected to the seven planets, uh, these uh, seven notes, which are... Seven spirits of, the, of God. Yeah, but also the, the result of uh, what uh, Guido D'Arezzo, who died in uh, uh, almost a thousand years ago, and who established this system of seven notes, picked up from... Uh, singing this poetry piece dedicated to St. John the Baptist, which is itself another important figure in Freemasonry. We have St. John the Baptist and St. John the Evangelist yeah. symbolizes also the uh, winter uh, uh, equinox, the moment, uh, as well as the summer solstice. Uh, so the, the musical scale, of course, uh, was representing something sacred, something sacred that can be, of course, abused, and then it becomes something completely not sacred, <laughs> and, and it actually can can drive you in 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 the hellish department. Now they can drive you below rather than above. So what happened was that I started my book with a project in 2014, which I published in Italy. Uh, eight years ago. It was uh, a much shorter book of 230 pages that I published in Italy dedicated to this subject. And I started my research in, uh, in, 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 but it was not, it was natural for me because I used to be a record producer. I used to be a DJ. I used to be somebody involved in the music business. So for me, it was simply like elaborating something connected with what uh, I used to be my previous life. I had many lives. I had many yeah. things that I did in my life. Um, and uh, I was very successful as a record producer. I published uh, something like over 40 singles, five albums, and I performed even at the Bolshoi in Moscow and around the world. So I was always, uh, uh, for me, music was a sacred thing. Now, I myself, uh, was involved in the Illuminati under various disguises, the Ordo Templiorientis, various secret societies I became involved in, and of course Freemasonry. Uh, and of course, uh, I knew the power of influencing people through frequencies. 
and uh, 4.32 was uh, Verdi's A, Verdi's A, Verdi's Do, uh, it was basically uh, Giuseppe Verdi was this great musician in Italy we had uh, that is uh, very well known because he's, he lies at the basis of a national anthem, you know, like sure. Verdi's, uh, is, is, is definitely his operas, his work is, is definitely, um, but uh, uh, what happened is that uh, in 1939, at the eve of the Second World War, People like Goebbels, uh, as well as people in England uh, who were working with the BBC, decided to uh, have uh, a summit, uh, kind of gathering. Uh, you, you might think that they were interested in something different on the eve of a, a world war <laughs> that we, you know, that having to tune instruments on a different frequencies. Because when you tune instruments, you know, up until 100 years ago, it depended where you were in, around the world, what kind of instruments you were playing, and you would tune them, fine-tune them, depending on the local kind of tradition. Then there is this, uh, there was this impulse uh, 100 years ago uh, to standardize things, uh, and it happened initially with uh, of course, the military bands. So within the US Army, we start seeing the first use uh, of this fine tuning no longer at 432, but rather at 430 Hertz. And after the war, the International Standard Organization, which is a globalist body, of course, of the New World Order, he uh, created, uh, they created the standardization. And why is it so important? Some people say that, that, uh, talking about 432 rather than 440 is just wasting your time and that basically uh, anyway the, if the music is good is good then it plays good also 440 maybe for the common ear but not for a fine-tuned ear who is also searching not only for entertainment value simply for uh, disinterested listening of music but for a much more deeper uh, and, and maybe even an elevated uh, moment in your own spirit. Like you said, music can change your spirit. And in that case, if you have the fine-tuned music, uh, the right music at the right time, it can really lift you up. Like what about the, the sub- You say lift you up before you go. go I mean, yeah. Definitely. <laughs> <laughs> it can, but it, it also, you know, one thing about music, just like books and, and uh, uh, you know, video media, is that the subconscious doesn't have the ability to discern whether what the input it's getting is from something real or whether it's from something we're reading or watching or hearing. Um, it just relates. That's why we relate to the underdog. That's why we, you know, we we really get drawn into these books, and you know, we we become we we kind of become the the character, for, you know, or who whatever perspective that book is written from. So subconsciously, um, yeah, it it gets into our heads. It uh, it reverberates, you know, deep within our psyche. I think. Um, you mentioned my birthday in your book at the beginning, not uh, well, it, not specifically my birthday, but usually whenever I see my birthday, I like to point it out and, and talk about it for a minute. Jim Morrison, um, April 19th, 1971, you mentioned in your book. I was born April 19th, 1973. And I fancy myself that I that I have just, you know, woken up the last few years and slipped under tyranny. But I, I realize now that it's been since the Second World War, at least. I mean, well before it, but since the Second World War that things have started to change. And you and I have really never known a time when it was before. Mm. Um, is that correct? I mean, you know, we've, we've, we're under the propaganda MK Ultra, if you would, wing of it. <laughs> Well, of course, we were born in a different era. Now, when I said earlier, uh, Giuseppe Verdi, Giuseppe Verdi actually didn't compose the national anthem, Italian, but he composed another hymn, which was the hymn of the nations. Uh, and he was like a guy who had uh, maybe an idealistic vision of music, as well as the people who came after him and had that same idealistic 
vision of music that was lost the moment in which music uh, became more and more a propaganda tool. However, we have to admit that even in the times of Mozart, music was oh, yeah. commissioned of, often by powerful people who, oh, yeah. you know, wanted this, wanted that, and so, you know, the artists had to adapt, and at times this uh, came in conflict with their art, uh, but they, most of them went along with the, most artists during the course of history, Leonardo da Vinci rather than Michelangelo, had to compromise to a certain extent to have their art uh, seen yeah. the light and for surviving with their art, because it's often, uh, more often uh, that uh, artists don't even manage to survive through their art. Most of them die destitute <laughs> and, 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 and don't have the, the great successes if they don't compromise. This compromise started sure. to become more apparent, I think, after the Second World War, like you said, because a real and proper industry was born to um, manipulate the masses. And more and more uh, consciously from the military industrial complex, who, of course, uh, uh, in the Second World War was also involved uh, with uh, radio transmissions, uh, with uh, the late part of the war, then devising, creating what was become the first television transmissions. And in the end, uh, they went into the creation of record labels because all these record labels, like I explained in my book, uh, RCA, EMI, they are all born out of the military industrial complex. And, and for that reason, then uh, it's uh, like the ugly side of entertainment that they really expose in this book. And when, when I wrote uh, this uh, book, uh, the first time I went into the study of these topics, I came here in California, it was 2014, and I wanted to actually investigate them myself, if there was any truth in this kind of Hollywood Illuminati myth, which I then, thanks to the connections I had in Hollywood, uh, the son of Oliver Stone, Sean, uh, that later on will help me also with finding my first book deal, sure. I was able to connect with various producers, people who make music and stuff, and then connect with the, the cinema wo cinematic world and, and see if there was really this connection. And, and there was this connection, and it was actually worse than what I thought. So then uh, I was capable of uh, studying for many years this scene from a different point of view, Having met these people, some actors, friends of Oliver Stone came and visited me, visited me in Rome. Uh, now I'm not going to say who because otherwise, you know, but they prefer maybe some privacy regarding. But we went together to the Vatican, went together to various places uh, and uh, met some uh, uh, Templar expert. Also, I remember one day I went with a limo, this famous actor brought me because he wanted to meet with this Templar expert in Italy and all kinds of things. So. I, I started to hear, though, things that uh, I was, you know, they said, we can't really tell you this publicly, but we want you to know this. And so they would go on and tell me this, this, and, that. and so I, I take notes, you know, I just sure. go along. And then um, when I arrived here in 2019, and that's really my foreword of my book, uh, Palm Springs, yes. the fact that mm -hmm. I moved here in Palm Springs is directly connected to, to Hollywood. Uh, it was basically the playground for a long time of all the Hollywood stars, still is to a certain extent because of this two hour rule that sure. they have to respect. And then Metro Goldie Meyer owned large parts of Palm Springs. So it was the ideal place for me to uh, learn, uh, to, 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 to continue my learning and my investigative uh, uh, mission was definitely also accomplished once I got uh, in contact with Roseanne Barr, who definitely addressed uh, some of my uh, questions regarding also the involvement of the Jewish people and why there was these problems with, with, uh, with some people in the Jewish world. And then, we, of course, I started to understand there was this Erev Rav, then there was the Sabbatian Frankist, of course, involvement in Hollywood. And so in the end, it became very clear to me what Hollywood was 
and uh, together with my experience, previous experience in the music business, my own experience also in the show business, because my grandmother used to uh, teach yeah. acting and used to work with Fellini, Zeffirelli, with two famous Italian film directors, legendary film directors. She herself was very famous as a PR of uh, William Barrows, who is a famous uh, beat writer, sure. as well as Brian Geisen. And, and so I started to put together all this material. And then a year ago, I remember it was, I was more or less this time. You, I, I you mentioned it. You mentioned it. Uh, you mentioned your Italian work uh, on my show. And we talked about, uh, you know, how, how you met the Pet Shop Boys, how, you know, your DJ uh, experience. I think uh, I, I think it was on my show where you mentioned or maybe maybe another interview I heard. Uh, but you mentioned that you were uh, one of the first people to, you know, to, to do the raves. And you actually yeah, created. I brought Prodigy to the first concert abroad. Uh, Did you? Did, well, <laughs> what, what, what about, talk just real quick, because there's a few things that, that I want to touch upon. But talk about your, your genre, because I, I have, you know, you, you, uh, you have a funk, uh, like a techno funk. Is that, is that what it was? Uh, well, sort of a, have, uh, you see, I started <laughs> working uh, in the music business very early. The, that was the early 80s, basically. I was a teenager, sure. had my first show, but I was also somebody who had the possibility, thanks to my grandmother, to meet all these famous people. So, you know, suddenly sure. I would be able to interact with a lot of famous people. Uh, from the music business, I will have a pass uh, to go to EMI headquarters and then go to all the concerts. And, and basically, wherever I would go, I would be treated like a VIP. And I, I didn't, I wasn't really anybody. So <laughs> I got you. it was pretty weird because I was starting to basically interview people. Um, I mean, well, I was nobody, but thanks to the connections I had, I was able to reach them. But then I, I kind of... Uh, put my own talent uh, together musically because I guess that from a very early age, my father had a friend called Tony Wormsley. He was a bass player. He actually played live with people like The Doors, like Jim Morrison, for yeah. example. He was a bass player. He was somebody who also composed a lot of songs and stuff. And he then retired from the music world about 30 30, 40 years ago, he became a Tai Chi master. So he kind of left the music world to, to do something completely different. Nothing wrong and, with that. Yeah. And, and, but uh, when, he was, uh, when I was young, uh, he would bring me all these tapes from all the various radios in America. We didn't have the internet. We didn't have the possibility of listening, uh, you know, to, to, to things, just pressing a button and you go anywhere in the world and listen to a radio. These days, very easy. At that time, you needed the tape. So he would bring me tapes from Philly 99 FM in Philadelphia, from WBLS in New York, from right. from radio stations around America that would give me an idea of the music, you know. And there was, of course, this uh, this crossover at that time. Uh, it was very good because the music genres were not so defined and there wasn't any racism. Racism is something that, unfortunately, is born out of the leftist uh, woke. Uh, completely invented, yeah. And so you used to mix, you know, you could have owner of a lonely heart of yes played before a track by, I don't know, the SOS band or another track by another uh, group on the same radio. And you would be like, wow, and the mix was great. And, and so I got very much into, in, into producing my own radio show at a very early age in December, uh, December uh, 1983, I started my first radio show. Having said that, I actually had been in the radio business from a very early age because yeah. my grandmother, sorry, my mother also had her own show on Catholic radio. Yeah. She used to bring me along. And uh, when I was 10 years old, I started to read uh, fairy tales for kids at a very early age, acting in small parts and this. Uh, and then I spoke, I remember after I, you know, I started to receive these tapes from America. I want, and I was starting, I, I bought, I was really an early guy. I started very early. I mean, when I was 10 years old for my school exam, elementary school exam, which you do after the fifth grade in Italy when you are 10, I asked uh, my mother to purchase a tape-to-tape, -tape, one of those uh, that you, right. know, you go around with. Go to real? 
So I could then uh, use this tape to tape uh, uh, to mix parts sure. of music and insert other. It was a very, of course, I mean, you are putting pause and then you start, but to, because it was so uh, not so easy to, to integrate them, then I, I had the idea, okay, I'm going to buy some special effects. So from one track to the other, I will insert a special effect. And all this was done before I even started my radio show. So when I started really my first radio show, I had finally two decks. I had a mixer. I I went through a lot to arrive there because I had to actually serve mass for three years in a Catholic church to sure. get to that position with the radio show with the Catholic radio. You you mentioned that. Uh, you mentioned that last time. Now now the and the, the guy who gave you the start. I mean he's he's. Well yeah. known, yeah, well, I mean, with the, yeah. the uh, SAT 2000, which is the Episcopal Conference uh, official channel of the Vatican sure. today. So, I mean, it, it is a very known uh, mediatic priest, Monsignor Mario Pieracci. So for me, it was like, uh, I guess that my faith was sealed by the fact that I came from a background of show business, uh, of course, uh, where my guy, where my grandmother, but also my mother, sure. to a certain extent, was involved. And then I had my father. My father used to have a TV show. He used to conduct a TV show on the occult at midnight in 1980 wow. in a TV in Rome called Tele Roma 56. Wow. And uh, together with a guy called Pietro Cimatti. Pietro Cimatti was a known author, and he was also part of a group, uh, um, it was like an occult group called, uh, I think, Grupo 70. They used to do mediumship sessions and things, all kinds of weird stuff. But in mm -hmm. any case, his show was on the paranormal and on the occult. And he went on for about, I guess, a couple of years with various shows until he decided that it, it was too much attention towards him. He didn't like what was happening around him things started to manifest and uh, he didn't like it. As a psychiatrist, sure. uh, he of course uh, had been involved uh, in uh, the Sorbonne University with the MK Ultra Studies on LSD. He had been himself also uh, wow. a, an academic and he had left that academic world to perceive the more um, occult side of things, the paranormal that wasn't studied within the academic realm at the middle of the 70s. He left his work as a psychiatrist to deal more with that. And uh, in the end, though, um, he decided, of course, that he preferred writing books because right. it, was, it was something that uh, didn't demand a direct contact with the crowd that could interfere with his own life. Sure. Uh, and uh, he made incredible, I mean, I remember one show he had guest Dario Argento, the film director who made so many horror movies. You know, Dario Argento made uh, Suspiria now is very popular, even made a remake of Suspiria, Profondo Rosso, many other movies. And, and so it was interesting that I was connected to that world. I was born within a world in which people were discussing the occult, paranormal, psychiatry, things from a very early age. And my grandmother arrived one day must have been around 12, 11, I don't know, but I was very young. And she gave this Alistair Crowley book, uh, the Book of Thought, uh, remember, uh, to my father. My father said, I'm not interested. And, and I said, I'm interested. <laughs> so, um, I ended up starting to study, of course, the occult, because my family library was fueled with, uh, with, uh, with the occult. Sure. And at the same time, I would be listening to music. That was my pastime, listening to music and reading uh, what I could read, which I wasn't allowed to read, by the way, because my father would have never allowed me to read those books. But oh, wow. I just went in his, when he wasn't around, uh, he was a night person, so he used to kind of sleep until... Uh, quite late and so four or five <laughs> no, no, we will wake up around one but i had the morning oh. time i could go and to the library and you know maybe uh, and 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 so uh, with the excuse that I, I wanted to listen to music in my headphones and he had a very good uh i-fi i-fi system you know uh, sure. uh, i i wanted to to, to just uh, and, and so that's what i did i and uh, of course uh, when I was also 10 years old, uh, 
my passion, like I said, was music, but also my passion was the occult because I saw in the back of a, a comic this publicity for a for a book, which I then described this in Invisible Master, which is one of my books. I described exactly which yeah. book it is. And I was a beacon book, so. And in, 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 so I had the possibility to, uh, in a way, uh, be born around this uh, link between the entertainment and the occult. And when I uh, put together volume eight, I was uh, lucky enough to know a lot of the characters which I'm talking about, either through my grandmother, either directly, either through my work as a DJ, and uh, either through uh, the work I did also as a radio presenter, uh, the, wor the work that I conducted for many years in, ca in countries like, for example, Russia, uh, which was a country I worked for many years in the entertainment world in Russia, I was one of the first DJs there who really, uh, you ask me what kind of music, you see, I was uh, basically discovered as a record producer by the creator of house music, Marshall Jefferson, who was from Chicago, who is sure. like considered like the godfather of house music. I know you mentioned uh, Jimmy Jam or Terry Lewis. Was it Jimmy Jam or Terry Lewis? You mentioned him as a uh, one time as a uh, oh, as an influence. I mean, these are people that definitely I look up to and they were great yep. producers. Even Quincy Jones is a great producer, yep. which I, I mean, oh, yeah. had a lot, I still, I think he's one of the greatest producers. I mean, the, 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 and I had the opportunity of uh, first uh, uh, starting in a recording studio with uh, a duo. I was part, uh, in 1987, I became part of a duo uh, that was the, with a rapper, of course, you know, mm -hmm. but it was a white rapper, so it was a different kind, and it was <laughs> one of the first white rappers. Again. But uh, I did my first record with a guy called Gazebo, who was an Italo-American living in uh, in Rome. His father, I think, worked for the embassy, American embassy or something. And with him, uh, we produced the first record. Uh, after that, I went on tour. But at the same time, I was also uh, going to London often, staying with my grandmother, meeting all these various people, continuing with, uh, you know, meeting people that I will interview. And at that, at that moment, I started to become myself famous. And sure. then at the time I was, 19, 20, then suddenly the ray phenomena exploded. You charted. In one of the, I was yeah. the guy who did the first rave in Italy yeah. in 1989. And this, uh, of course, uh, is confirmed by uh, the Italian newspaper La Repubblica. It's not me who says it, because otherwise, sure. okay. right. no, I have it <laughs> written by actually a libtard leftist. Uh, Fact check it. Fact check it, leftist. You know? <laughs> and uh, Actually, at the same time, when they started to write about me, there was a journalist called Dino D'Arcangelo who started to follow me around because he saw this phenomenon developing. And he was a music journalist. He, I say he was because unfortunately he died in, uh, at the end of the 90s of, of, of tumor. And he died, of course, before his time. Nobody should die of, of, of cancer, but uh, he was a very good friend of mine. And I didn't really... And he didn't care about my political inclinations were completely opposite to his because he was a guy who was really understanding the bigger picture. And he wanted me to become a journalist. So he invited me to go to the headquarters of La Repubblica, which is the one with the Corriere della Sera, is one of the main two newspapers, to learn to actually be a journalist. Right. You, you mentioned, uh, at, at, I think at a point, there was this point where you were kind of tying in the music and the 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 occult and yes. everything and and this that happened, i think uh, this happened uh, you see uh, what happened was i went through uh, various parts I, I launched the rave scene in italy then unfortunately yeah. i had uh, inaugurated this after hours in this church that was consecrated but the vatican didn't take it very lightly that i was using a church to do this kind of thing Sure. So in the end, I had to leave Italy in 1994 and I moved to England. In England, I founded my own record label. I initially, I, because, I, I, you know, I had to start once again because, you know, I, I was big. Yes, but in Italy, 
I used to work in Switzerland, but I never worked in England. In England is the number one place in London where if you want to make it with music, but it's also a very harsh place. Nobody's going to... Sure. Who, who are you? And then nobody's going to care. But the thing is that in 1990, in Italy, I had actually made some groundbreaking record that yeah. was inspired by what was happening in Detroit, in Chicago, eh? but with a different touch. And that record was the true underground sound of Rome was the group we, f we formed. And we published uh, a couple of groundbreaking records who became in turn very popular here in America, in Chicago and in Detroit. So then I will have these people come to me and say, wow, you're Leo, uh, Leo Young. Mm -hmm. That was my artistic name, which right. is by the way, also the, ser the surname of one of the surnames of my mother. So it's also actually a surname, it's not just Young. Because and Young, because he's also an aristocratic family of great importance, the, right. my ancestor Young was the tutor of King James, who wrote the King James Bible, just so you know. I mean, wow. so, okay. so he, he was the tutor of Ginger. Um, so wow. I uh, went on to um, establish my record label after, of course, a couple of years in which I launched myself. And I wanted to still live the life, though, while I was launching myself. So I also created an agency where I was promoting record labels in Italy from England. So and also promoting artists. So I became like a booking agency for a lot of big artists. And one of these big artists was the inventor of house music, Marshall Jefferson, who one day came to my house and listened to a track that I had made up in Blackpool, actually with a guy. And this guy used to be also a famous guy because he was this, he, he now lives in Los Angeles, called Mark Bell. And he basically was the singer of a song of a new version of Don't Look Any Further, for a group called M People. Manchester. Mm. And uh, his friends were people like New Order. They all, all used to hang out in this club called the Hacienda Club, which was one of the first clubs that played house music in Europe. And with him, we made this track, but nothing really came out of it. I just came back are, from Blackpool with this. Are, are they associated with KLF as well? KLF, uh, I talked very much about them in uh, yeah. this book, Volume 8, because... Yes. Uh, I, KLF was... Uh, Ancients of Moon, yeah, yeah. Yeah, and it was actually the first track I played when I when I played on my first rave. It was the first track I just dropped. It was KLF, What Time Is Love, you know? And, and that was, uh, for people who don't know, KLF are connected to Discordianists, but they also connected to that movement, uh, which was all created by a guy called Genesis Peorich, the right. psychic youth, and all that movement yeah. around it. Now, I was lucky enough because Genesis Peorich was also a friend of my grandmother and actually worked with my grandmother in the early 80s for this tour that William Barrows, Brian Geisen, and various groups like Cabaret Voltaire, which uh, famous groups back then, were right. making with William Barrows. You know, like, I mean, for people who don't know, William Barrows is the author of Naked Lunch but he's also the author of a book called The Wild Boys. And that mm -hmm. Wild Boys had been extremely influential in the 80s. Boy George. Boy George. Yeah. Uh, Duran Duran, Wild yeah. Boys, Wild Boys. Wild I mean, Boys. I went out to yeah. dinner with, this, with the dancers of, of Wild Boys. Right. Uh, I, I, I actually met also, uh, the, 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 I remember I went to the studio where Duran Duran was recording, I remember once with this guy. <laughs> John Adams, uh, who was produced by, I think, Andy Taylor. And then I uh, I was very much into creating my own style of music, but at the same time, I was very much on the cutting edge of electronic music. From right. the very uh, early stage of my DJing, from the middle of the 80s, uh, one of the main tracks that uh, kind of uh, addressed this mix of things was Polar Castle 19. I don't know if you remember that track. Polar Castle 19 was a number one hit also here in the US on Billboard and stuff. It was basically the first that it sampled parts of the war in Vietnam, 1919. Oh, actually, there's, you know what? I, I do remember that. My, my dad is a Vietnam veteran, and that was, yes, uh, Paul Hardcastle. You know that YouTube, that was in my Powder Monkey playlist. We mentioned you, we discussed YouTube. 
YouTube will not allow me to play that because it is violent. It's too, it's too violent. It's they, uh, they look it up. It's uh, unless they've removed it already, but yeah, I, uh, I love that. I actually Paul amongst my friends on Facebook. Uh, wow. Well, <laughs> yeah, well, yeah. Also, actually, you know, I never met him personally, if not once by coincidence. And it wasn't actually a nice encounter. It was me going out of the Steve Wonder concert and him with his Jaguar almost putting me down. And I was like, oh, and there was this guy and, you know, but actually he, in 1985, uh, he teached something, I think, different because it was the time in which, of course, there was all this uh, Africa Bambata, Zulu Nation, uh, Electro was becoming popular. Uh, at, the, at the same time, we had high energy, but he mixed with his samples something that was actually, uh, he was denouncing something social uh, with this track, you know, that people right. were dying at age 19 in a war like Vietnam, in a hideous war like uh, the, the war in Vietnam. And, and, and sure. it was, uh, so for me, a revelation almost of how you can address an important social issue through music. Right. And well, I, that. From that moment onwards, I started to always be inclined in following that kind of approach in my vision also, music speak, musically speaking. So even when I did my first EP of great success, which is True Underground Sound of Rome, but all the tracks will have specific titles. Like the opening title was, which became very successful, was The Secret Doctrine, and it was based on Madame Blavatsky. So, I mean, that was what I was doing when I was only 20. So you can imagine what I was doing 10 years later when I recorded The Magical Child, which yes. was the album, which was played also by people like John Peel and the BBC it was a big success in Russia. It sold 10,000 copies only in Russia. It was a big album in Russia and a single, right. a true American hero with William Barros and the cover, which sampled pieces of also the Second World War, pieces of... Uh, um, Austin, a six million dollar man, you know, a right. true American hero, but I was trying a broken shell of a man depicting on the cover as a true American hero, William Barros, which is a, the most antithetic hero you can have because William Barros is not really, you know, it was a junkie, right. <laughs> you know, in a way, but he was also a genius, you know. So I think that uh, the, the, this book, uh, probably amongst all the books which I have written, is probably the one that deals uh, more than others, actually probably the only one that deals with all this uh, information uh, with my career in, in the entertainment world. Which After also went through a time in which I was kind of, 1985 and 1986, I was like, my grandmother was pushing me to do acting and to become an actor. Right. But at the same time, I was starting to show signs that I could have actually made it with the music business. You were adept On my it. own, without sure. any help. Yes, at the beginning, she helped me because when I was 16, 17, at one point when I was 17, she... Uh, she said, well, darling, if you want, uh, you know, very British accent, my grandma was very proper. Uh, you know, we, we should, uh, if you want to, I can try to find a job for you in a club. And she actually found me a job in this club called Legends, which was in Bond Street, right in the center of London, with right. the most exclusive crowd. The Rolling Stones came there, Mick Jagger, uh, Style Council, people were like, all the VIPs were coming there. And suddenly I was DJing for them. So, do you have moves like Jagger, Leo? Do you have do you have moves like Jagger? <laughs> Definitely, I guess I have. <laughs> but in any case, uh, it, it was it was definitely an incredible experience because I was actually seventeen. Amazing, yeah. And I wasn't even technically allowed to be in a club where you sell alcohol. Right. Okay. And but I was actually DJing, and at one point. It was Genesis uh, Piorridge one day that came to my house and he used to have uh, this thing of dressing up like a woman. And uh, just, uh, you know, my grandmother didn't mind him going to the bathroom, transforming himself as a woman and having a cup of tea with us at five. And one day he came <laughs> up with uh, a bunch of records and he says, uh, Leo, this just uh, fall off a band. 
I said, what, what full offer? I didn't understand the concept. I don't know where he got these records. It was this many records, and they were all electronic house music with tracks that were not really available anywhere. I don't know where he got them, but then I picked up that music, and the night I started to play it in London. Now, in London, at that time, didn't play that kind of music. One of sure. my friends, which now I have also... Um, Facebook. He lives now in Los Angeles. He used to be a very popular DJ in the 80s, Jay Strongman. Um, and he was actually an inspiration to me because he was the first uh, DJ, English DJ, to ever go to work in Russia when it was still the Soviet Union. And uh, uh, he was playing, basically, in London. They were playing funk, things like yeah. James Brown, things like very much in the funk kind of thing. No? Sure. They were not into electronic. The people who were playing this kind of music were in Manchester. It was the Hacienda Club, which I told you about before. But there was nobody in London. So I started to play these tracks, and the people reacted positively in London to this music. But then I had to go back to Italy because I had to go back to school. And then, because I wasn't doing so well in school and my father wasn't very happy, he just sent <laughs> the military in 1989. But right. before I went on to the military, I said, I want to do one last thing, and that is a rape. So that was my first rape was born out of basically one month before the military. I put together, I, I had been working as a professional DJ, earning a lot of money working um, in Arezzo, with uh -huh. the, which was the home of Licio Gelli, with actually his side, with the guy who used to be his uh, deputy, which was uh, Pier Gentili, which his son is still my friend. Right. And, uh, they had this mega 5,000 people club. And I, at one point, said to my father, to my mother, listen, you can do whatever you want, but I'm earning $5,000 a month. Can you beat that? <laughs> so I'm, I'm like no. 1988, you know, and $5,000 a month was a lot of money. That's but, a lot so, of money in 88. Can you beat that? No. So I said, I'm going to study at my own pace. Plus, I went to my father and I told him, I made him, I made him actually a very serious because my father was a very intellectual guy. So I couldn't just go there and say, I want to be a DJ because he would have probably, he, would have, he was already wanting to kick my ass all the time. So <laughs> I went to him and I did a very sincere speech to him based on Kafka, on, which is a very important writer, and based on the fact that I didn't want to be brainwashed by these leftists in their schools. Sure. And I did, I remember still, I went up to the studio of my father and I said, okay, this is why I'm leaving this school. And I'm not gonna be in this school any longer because I don't agree with them. And in fact, I was completely right because the guy who actually was the head of the school, he used to work with the radio, with uh, Don Mario Pieracci. He was actually called Don, Don Paolo Pecoraro. Now, if you go on Wikipedia and you find this guy, he was the creator of what is known as Catto Communism. Okay. A mixed elements of communism and Catholicism, and basically created an alliance which initially then became part of the leftist side of the Christian Democrat Party that ruled Italy for 50 years. Wow. And so he knew who I was. He knew my grandfather had been a politician, a very important politician. He knew who my father was. And he wanted, he was giving me always a hard time, though I must say he was respectful of me until uh, at one point he left the school because of old age and a successor came into the school who didn't have the same kind of approach because he didn't know who I was. He right. didn't have that personal link with me. And suddenly we got in a clash immediately. And so he wanted to, he started to write notes to my parents saying, I didn't do this, I didn't do, I was ba a bad student. I, didn't. I told him just to fuck, sorry. I said, <laughs> it's all good. And I discovered that this guy was an ex-priest. He had been defrocked. Now for me, a defrocked priest is the worst kind of priest because yeah. it means that you have really lost everything, uh, any decency, if you are a defrock priest. And sure. defrock priests often are the worst. So 
I uh, basically that that experience brought me to leave uh, the school at that moment. And then I will pick up my studies later on because I went into the world of the music business, which is something that I was very successful and uh, created the first rape. Then I went also in the military, though, so I also had that experience. But in this book, I I pick up from all these experiences that I think have been very important in my life. And I explain how this manipulation goes on behind mm -hmm. the scenes. You know, when when you go around the world and DJ and at the same time you, in every single town, I remember I used to visit the lodge members of the Otto Tempi Orientis or Freemasons and stuff and have direct contacts. It's a very different, uh, I mean, you had the club, you had the music I was playing, which was very particular. And right. at one point, uh, I decided to unify these experiences and I created the electronic voodoo, which was uh, uh, one night which I used to do in uh, Iceland, in Belgium, in Russia, all over Europe, which was based on the concept of uh, bringing out the esoteric side of music. And I would right. mix... Uh, voices, uh, frequencies and stuff. And it was a good experience. So I think I answered uh, you very well with this. And I actually probably gave uh, also a complete explanation of what, what my book is all about. It's about uh, uh, not only denouncing all this, but also about the personal experience. Because when I eventually in 2003 went uh, against these people, that was the end of my... That was it. They came after you. They came they, after you they at that point. It was impossible for me to DJ. I resisted basically two years <laughs> within the music business from 2003 to 2005. And then I thought, but, but, I'm going to this. And that's that, why in 2006, then eventually came out and exposed all this. Absolutely. Leo, I promised I'd keep you at an hour. Uh, I, I do uh, appreciate it. Uh, you know, there were some things we didn't touch upon. Uh, I, I, what we can do is maybe in a month we can absolutely again and we can have a second part. So you can. would love to do that. Would love to do right. that. Um, but uh, how do they find your book? I recommend everybody. I would love to set up a, a second one here in, in a few, uh, you know, in a few weeks, a month or whatever. How do they find your book in the meantime? How do they do that? And, uh, you yeah. know, how do they support your work? All the links to my latest books on leozagami.com with all my latest articles. And then, of course, you can find me on Amazon for all the previous books. Uh, so I would suggest always to go on leozagami.com because it's also a way to, to, to see what's happening, you know, behind the scenes. I tend to bring out these articles. You do. Thank you. you. Do. And, you uh, do. and then, you know, the latest one actually I touched on... Uh, uh, Hollywood, uh, what happened with the Oscars in China, which is one of the subjects, by the way, of this book. So yes. I think oh, that, that I mean, the you lay it all out. Manipulations behind the entertainment business are all described in this book, as well as much more. So maybe we can go in the next episode uh, we do together uh, in, in, in the parts we didn't touch. Absolutely. I will reach out to you and, if, and uh, we'll set something up uh, just as a teaser for part two. Then what I'm going to do is let you know, you mentioned the AI, you mentioned uh, Cyber Satan. I don't know if you've ever been interviewed by an AI, but I do have, I asked an AI, uh, if you could ask Leo Zagami based upon his work, one question, what would you ask him? And so we will set that up for part two and we'll dive a little deeper into that in a few weeks. That, uh, just before I leave you, is that chat GPT uh, is defamatory towards me, uh, the it, one in Italy at least. In fact, there yes. was uh, some several defamatory statements which I reported to the relative parties. It's, they said uh, that in 2017, the Byzantine Center had uh, addressed me as a dangerous anti-Semite. Then I contacted myself, the Byzantine Center, to ask them if that was true, and they said it wasn't. So... ChatGPT is built on lies. Yeah, well, ChatGPT, this uh, here in America, for some reason, and just briefly, it it seems to it seems to be familiar with you. It, it's not so much negative. Uh, it does it refers to you as you know refers to your expertise and everything, but uh, it it doesn't. Uh, it only knows so much about you. I had to correct it. I would ask it to summarize certain things that I knew about you just but to it check wasn't it. Amateur, at least. 
Uh, no, 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 no. But uh, but yeah, we'll we'll get a little further into that because here in a few the weeks. Study was highly defamatory. Uh, okay, you can say I'm against the church. I'm against uh, that. That is quite clear. That I'm yeah, not, no, it it it, but, it didn't do that. The that they said the Visental Center, and even the, they said that the Jewish community in Rome. I mean, I don't. I mean, I'm partly Jewish myself. It didn't make yeah. sense. It yeah. was completely defamatory. So there must be definitely sure. different information which is fed in Italy rather than the one that is fed over here. So I'm glad that you are doing this, and I'm very much interested in following up with this interview with you and ChatGPT. We will do that, sir. Thanks so much. Thank you for uh, your time, Leo Zagami. Once again, it was a great chat. We'll do this here again in a few weeks. Thanks so much, man.